The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Brian Moon from Perigene Technologies. And I'm Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. We're pleased to be talking today with Joel Suss. Joel is Assistant Professor of Human Factors in the Department of Psychology at Wichita State University. His research work focuses on understanding and improving perceptual cognitive performance, in particular, anticipation and decision-making, in complex and challenging operational settings such as law enforcement, security, military command and control, aviation, and emergency medicine. He has examined perceptual and cognitive aspects of CCTV monitoring and how automated intelligent video surveillance systems are changing the human operator's role in security surveillance. Joel is perhaps best known for his work investigating ways to train police officers to make better decisions in stressful situations. Originally from Australia, Joel completed his PhD in Applied Cognitive Science and Human Factors at Michigan Technological University. Welcome, Joel. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Brian, for having me on. I really appreciate it. And Laura. So so let's just jump right in. Uh, Your work in police training is particularly relevant at the moment. Uh, I wonder if you could sort of tell us how you first got involved with researching law enforcement. Sure, sure. I'd love to. So I was back in Australia uh, where I was born and I was working for a time in the private security industry. And over time, I moved into a training role where I was training some people in use of force. So things like defensive tactics or hand-to-hand combat, that kind of thing. Uh, firearms, batons, decision-making under stress. And I ended up asking myself, why are we training people the way that we're training them? How do we know that this way works? And in that field, the answer normally is because that's what we've always done or this is the way that I was trained, so this is the way that I'm going to train people. And I wasn't uh, really satisfied with that. And so I started hunting down information and that led me on a search, which took quite quite a while. Um, there was internet back in those days, but it wasn't like it is now. And eventually I ended up coming across Gary Klein's book, Sources of Power. I found it online. Um, I'm pretty confident there was no Amazon in those days or there was no you know one or one day shipping. And so I was in Australia, I looked up which library had that book, and the very next day I went to the library, read the book, and said, ah, I think this is it. I think I've kind of found the area that that might be interesting. And so I ended up writing to someone, or just in general, sent an email to Gary's company, and someone there put me in touch with a couple of people in Australia who were doing work in the NDM community, um, namely Mary Omidy and Gavin Linton. And I was lucky enough to, to meet with them and get some guidance from, uh, from them. And I was basically told, well, you need to go and study psychology and then go get a graduate degree in psychology. So I thought, okay, I'll do that. And I did my undergraduate psychology degree in Australia. And then I was looking to you know, focus on things in law enforcement and there just wasn't, I didn't see much opportunity to do that in Australia. And so I started looking for opportunities elsewhere and I, I applied to graduate schools in the United States and was lucky to end up at the beginning of my degree with um, at Florida State University in the cognitive psychology program with Paul Ward as my advisor. And he had done some work on expertise and perceptual cognitive expertise in law enforcement before, and I kind of carried that on or got inculcated into that in a way, and that's how I got involved with researching law enforcement. So your operational experience, it sounds like, was uh, was kind of a driver, and I wonder if you could think back to those days and, and maybe articulate sort of what you were training and maybe your operational experience and other than this is sort of just 
the way we always do it. I wonder, were you seeing any sort of conflicts between your own experience uh, and then the way it was being trained? Hmm. Um, I, I think I was lucky to be training with a, a group of very thoughtful people. Uh, and together we put a lot of thought into the way that, that we were doing things. Um, you know, I was never a, a law enforcement officer, um, so I, I've got kind of very minimal experience. You know, the operational stuff that I did was standing outside buildings looking for suspicious activity for long periods of time with not much happening. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I definitely can't say I have lots of um, relevant operational experience, but I've kind of got enough to, to to put me in that kind of mindset of what police officers need to deal with. And in, in terms of the training, we were trying to do more and more scenario training and put people under stress. And we, we were doing that, and I think I benefited from that kind of training. But one of the things that we found is that doing that and giving each individual their own experience in dealing with realistic situations that are stressful, it takes a lot of time and effort to put on that kind of training. And so what ends up happening a lot of the time is people don't end up getting very much of that training just because it's logistically and logistically expensive and in terms of time it's also expensive. So that that's one of the things that... Um, I and my colleagues back then were, were grappling with and just trying to find ways ways around that. And one of the ways that we tried to do that was to, to get people to think to do tabletop exercises or tactical decision exercises uh, to, to put them mentally in situations and get them to think about what they might do. Right, so those kinds of exercises are, are certainly uh, ones that would be uh, espoused by the NDM community. I wonder if you could kind of walk us through also with just with respect to how to go about doing your research in terms of methods, but also maybe, as you mentioned, sources of power, reflecting on models that you thought saw as particularly relevant uh, to your research. It, can you sort of walk us through the connections of your, of your work and, and with the NDM community? Sure. Um, well, I spent, you know, after reading Sources of Power and then really finding out more and more about the naturalistic decision-making community, I started reading a lot of work in there, of course, related to, to recognize, sorry, to recognition prime decision-making. And particularly, I was interested in the anticipation side of that and how then how that relates to choosing a course of action. So I really um, got a lot out of the situation assessment part of things and in a way how that links with other models like situation awareness so that there's this emphasis on experts being able to read the situation, understand it, and at maybe the highest level to predict what's going to happen. And that may just be predicting what's going to happen in the next second or so. It may not be predicting what's going to happen in seconds or minutes or hours down the track. In police situations, things can often uh, evolve very quickly. So it may just be uh, what might happen in the next couple of seconds, which is the way that a, a situation can play out. So definitely um, recognition prime decision-making came into things. Uh, another model, in, and I just really got stuck into this a little bit more recently, I, I, I'm kind of embarrassed to say, but um, flexicution. So this idea of um, situations or naturalistic situations being ones in which there may not be clear goals at the beginning and it may be interacting with the situation that lets goals kind of percolate up or lets you clarify goals as you go along. And so that's been really pertinent to, to some of the current work that I'm doing right now. Right. So I, I just a bit of a segue here uh, to uh, maybe, a, maybe more of a sidebar, but um, so I did my graduate work uh, in, in sociology deviance. And so 
there, there's also quite a few sort of sociological models about law enforcement and uh, and and the various sort of uh, factors that go into thinking about how police do their work. Uh, one in particular that I recall is, is this idea of sort of deviancy amplification where there may or may not be sort of this initial um, uh, deviant act, uh, but it's the response of the law enforcement to it hmm. that sort of uh, amplifies the way that the, uh, you know, deviants, uh, continue to act. And so that might be publicized and you might, you know, uh, each side might hear more about it. And so there's more attention then to that original act, or at least the perception of that original act. And so I've, I've, I've always sort of throughout my career kind of compared what I learned in graduate school in the sociological models to, uh, you know, to the, to the NDM models. And so there, there feels like a good fit there in particular, this idea that, uh, it's that, as you said, that original anticipation about what's going to happen in a situation, which might very well, uh, have someone draw on their own experience in terms of what they've seen these kinds of situations play out as in the past, uh, or also what they might just anticipate is going to happen, whether that's, whether that's an accurate reflection of what does happen or not. And, mm. and of course, you know, with, with, with everything that's sort of going on now in terms of policing, and, you know, a lot of attention sort of gets paid to certain, you know, kind of aspects of either behavior or, or even sort of personal characteristics of, of the perceived, uh, you know, civilian on the law enforcement side. I wonder, um, with that sidebar in mind, I wonder if, if this idea of sort of anticipation and uh, and the way that uh, that certain sort of law enforcement uh, concepts like profiling and those sorts of things have played out over the last few years. If you have any particular perspective uh, in sort of the the NDM vernacular, if you will, about that anticipation way that uh, you know that anticipation piece where you know law enforcement are are anticipating certain aspects of situations, which again, may or may not be accurate perceptions, but it's that initial sort of introduction to this situation. Is that a focus of your research? Is that a focus of your, your training, that sort of initial anticipation piece? Um, I, that's interesting. I, I don't think that it's a, as you just described it, I don't think that it's a big focus of my research, but I do want to say that the more that I go on and the more that I've had the opportunity to collaborate with people in criminal justice and criminology, mm-hmm. I realized that there's lots of other theories out there, ones that I hadn't really been exposed to just being relatively narrowly in psychology. And so I've, I've kind of, I've just realized recently that I've got to get myself up to speed on some of those things. Uh, because there's there's kind of set and long established approaches in criminology and criminal justice that look at police citizen interactions and how they develop. But to to try to answer a, a bit of your question um, in terms of anticipation, I think that it's more. I'm just taking taking a second to think here. Um, that one of the things is that officers are taught in their training or in in many different academies, they're taught this, what's been called warrior mindset, that Mm -hmm. their safety is the number one priority at all times and that any situation can turn violent and that their main responsibility is to get through their day and survive and get back to their families safely and so from that perspective that that leads or that can lead people to just kind of flatly anticipate violence or threat when not every situation is going to be threatening or be equally threatening and so it's really you know a a way that I think about it and it's it's kind of simplistic but I find it really useful is just to kind of apply signal detection theory in that not all situations are going to be ones where someone's going to pull a gun on you or pull a knife or where where there may be a really high threat so it's more of a matter of being calibrated or using you know using the beginning of the interaction with a with a citizen 
to, calib to quickly calibrate yourself and try to work out, well, in which box does this fit? Is this a, is this a situation that really has potential for violence, um, in which case I really need to be on my game? Or does this seem like it's going to be more laid back and I still need to be cautious, but I don't need to be thinking at every second that someone's going to kill me. So, Joel, I was going to jump in here and just ask you to tell us a little bit more about your um, your training approach. So how, how do you help people become better calibrated? So the way that we're trying to do that at the moment is through giving people a range of experiences and exposing them to a variety of different scenarios that cover lots of different situations and that challenge their decision-making and goal prioritization in different ways. And so just like I was mentioning in, in the training that I had been involved in previously in, in my own experience, um, you know, police departments do engage in realistic live role-play scenarios, but generally, again, time-consuming, logistically demanding, and so generally trainees don't get that much time or that much experience. And then even if they do or when, when they do those things, they may not get that much time spent in debriefing about how they approached it and what they were thinking. There's often, um, it, it's been in my experience, that there's a large focus on the outcome of the scenario. Right? What, what did you do and did you end up with the scenario in a good way rather than the process of how did you get there and really digging in a bit deep. So that's one of the things that I'm trying to focus on at the moment is finding ways to give people just more experiences in challenging situations and then finding ways to give them feedback. And so one of, one of the things, one of the main projects that I'm involved in now which I can talk about uh, when, when you uh, ask me about it, um, is really getting at that. So let me ask about this project. Okay. <laughs> what a good opportunity. Okay, so it's a, a project that's funded by the National Institute of Justice, and I'm lucky to be working with a, with a group of people on this. The, the principal investigator on the project is Dr. Jeff Rojek from... Michigan State University. His background is in criminology and criminal justice. And then I'm also working with um, a company called Polis Solutions. And they have an online training platform that's based around video. It's actually kind of like Shadowbox, like Gary Klein Shadowbox. And the two people, uh, the two founders of Polis Solutions, um, are both PhDs in sociology, Dr. Jonathan Wender and Dr. Brian Landy, and they've all they've also got backgrounds in law enforcement, and so they're kind of focusing on the shadow box kind of idea for law enforcement specifically. And so what we're trying to do in our project is to see if we can use video and specifically video from police body worn cameras from actual incidents, if we can identify some good scenarios from those and if we can create what we call tactical decision exercises so online decision making exercises using those videos where we break it down into a couple of different segments and so you you watch the first part of the incident you get to a decision point where the video pauses and then there's a variety of questions that uh, can be used to engage the learner in that scenario and we can ask you know all the kinds of um, cognitive skills that are covered in naturalistic decision making whether that be anticipation decision making so what course of action would you pursue but also things like goal prioritization and uh, shortcuts so how would you handle this situation how might it be different from ways that you've been trained, so different from standard operating procedure. And so that's, I guess, that's the main part of the study in terms of training. 
And we're going to have several different groups assigned to different kinds of that training, plus a, a no training control group that's not going to get the training at all. And then we've got a, in a simulator that's a video-based simulator that's used in law enforcement. They're often called judgment and decision-making simulators. And really, it's just a big projector screen and a computer that has a bunch of pre-recorded scenarios in there that uh, you project on the screen and officers are meant to interact with those. And the officer's given uh, a gun that has a laser built into it instead of real ammunition. And so the system can track the, the officer's movement and it can track uh, what they say so it can record what the officers are actually doing. And then if there is a need for the officer to draw their weapon and actually fire, so the system will record when they do that, how many shots, where the shots hit. But you can also have other simulated weapons in there like tasers, which we've got, and capsicum spray as well. And so we're going to be using the simulator as a way of testing performance at the beginning before people start engaging in the, the online training and then again at the end of the training as a post-test to see if there's been improvement due to the online video training. So that's kind of in a, in the smallest nutshell, that's the uh, project that I'm, the main project that I'm working on at the moment. So Joel, I'm, I'm curious about law enforcement's reception to your work uh, and the work of your colleagues, um, especially going back to your earlier comment when, when you were uh, sort of trying to figure out wh whether the training sort of fits with your experiences. What, what kind of reactions are you getting from the community? So any time that I start talking about naturalistic decision-making stuff like anticipation and goal prioritization to, to a lot of police officers and trainers, um, I often get blank stares, and that just may be my inability to uh, talk about it in a way that's engaging. Um, I think I'm learning how to do that better, um, but it's it, it's a challenge. And in interestingly, you're kind of talking to me about training receptivity, and one of the people or a couple of the people on the grant did a previous funded project that was doing this kind of training, right? what we'd call um, tactical decision exercises. So sitting down in a room with a group of police officers, showing them a video, stopping it, engaging in discussion, getting them to actually answer questions individually about it, and then uh, leading a discussion about those things. And they those people, uh, so Jeff Rojek, uh, Scott Wolf, who's also at Michigan State University, and again, the people from Polis, they did a really nice job. They've written a couple of papers about training receptivity based on that because officers have to do lots and lots of different training in their careers on, a, on an annual basis. And it's every new bit of training is to them, you know, like, oh, my gosh, I've got to do more stuff. Is this even going to be useful? So there's, there's kind of an attitude, um, there can be a negative attitude towards training. And so they focused on trying to assess training receptivity. And some of the things that they found are that getting someone like me, even though I wasn't involved in that project that they did, getting someone like me with my background, um, with a focus on naturalistic decision-making, getting someone like that to stand in front of police officers and conduct this kind of training is probably one of the dumbest things in the world. Um, I, I just, doesn't matter what my background has been, um, I don't have the credibility and I, and I don't have the experience. And so really it's about trying to find people who get the NDM side of things and, and I'm talking about finding police officers who get that kind of thing and training them to be the ones that can deliver this kind of training and engage officers in it. And I think that's really important. And an another thing that they found was that it's not just any, any trainer that you can get to do this. It has to be someone who really understands this, the whole cognitive side of things, which is something that police officers may know intuitively, but it doesn't get spoken a lot about. They, they, it's not something that they focus on 
very much. And so really you need to find people who understand that and who really have a passion for training and a passion for delivering this kind of stuff. And that kind of links into one other thing, which is the idea of um, deliberate practice and deliberate performance. So this idea of constantly developing and constantly pushing yourself and trying to reflect on your own practice. So there's not all police officers are like that. And so that's another kind of characteristic that you'd look for in a potential instructor who could deliver this kind of training to police officers. Yeah, it does feel like not only in this domain, but but many of the domains we work in, uh, sort of finding those rare birds of uh, folks who can sort of understand and and speak the language on both sides um, is an important uh, requirement for, for getting the NDM uh, perspective sort of out there and uh, and it has to be in you know we talk about the, all this uh, we talk about this all the time about interviewing sort of in the uh, mm. in the language of uh, of the domain participants but you're you're also suggesting our our solutions always need to be uh, in that same language as well and pitched at levels that uh, are going to be appropriate for um, you know for, for the audience but even more importantly, in the culture, if you will, of, of that audience as well. Yes, and and I just find that you know dealing with law enforcement that there's there's often um, a skeptical attitude towards academics in general, or um, people with PhDs call it call it whatever you want. And so, any time that I deal with with police, there's always this kind of to and fro where you're trying to establish that you've got some kind of credibility and, and that, that you are not out to get them, that you're actually out to, to support them and, and try and help them. And, you know, it, it doesn't really matter that I think I have all the skills and some knowledge that I can use to train police officers. If police officers don't think that, it kind of doesn't make a difference what I think. Right. And um, I, I've, I've been lucky to... Um, encounter some situations where, you know, I've been told, I've been taken aside by police officers and said, you know, it's clear that you know what you're talking about, right? We don't think that you're an idiot, but you're not connecting with the people. And you've got to go and work out how to do that. And so, you know, that's a, that's a constant challenge. Uh, for me, something that I'm I'm trying to work on, and I you know I try to liaise with law enforcement officers quite a lot. I have a good opportunity here at Wichita State. There's the law enforcement training centre that's here on campus, so it's co-located with the criminal justice program at our university. And I've got uh, contact with some really great people over there in, in the, on the training side, so I, I get to interact with them quite a bit, but. At the same time, you know, I've, I've that's taken a long time, and it takes a long time to develop those relationships. So the very first thing that I did when I arrived here, about five years or so ago in Wichita, was I looked up to see if the police department and the local sheriff's office had a a citizen police academy, which they did. They had a joint one. And just to be clear, that's not something that trains you to become a police officer. It's a program that's designed to foster better um, connections between the community and the police. And so it's something that's just, normally it's about 12 weeks. Lots of cities and jurisdictions have these. uh, 12 weeks, one night a week for about three hours a week. And they bring in lots of people from different uh, departments of the police and sheriff's office uh, to talk about different things and you get to go to the shooting range and the jail and eat jail food, get to go to the crime lab and all those kind of things. And so that was that was uh, a very big step in just me uh, saying that I'm interested in learning about the police here and people got to, to know that I was, you know, that my um, motivations were pure, I guess you'd call it, and that I'm not out to kind of get the police or make them look bad. Right. Yeah, that immersion piece that you're sort of getting uh, in that situation, I imagine, has 
has paid quite a few dividends, um, at least being able to sort of speak the same language and and appreciate the, the perspectives. Um, I wonder if uh, you've already mentioned a few people along the way that, uh, that you've been doing research with and that uh, sort of help you uh, understand what the NDM perspective was. Um, I, I wonder, you know, you mentioned Paul Ward. Are there other folks that have kind of influenced your approach, um, both within NDM and, and also outside? Yeah, I, I think, even though this is a cliche, I think that there's kind of too many to mention. Um, or, or if you'll let me have a few hours, I'm happy to mention them all, but I don't think that you want that. There's, there's definitely um, people like Anders Ericsson. So he just um, passed away a, a week or so ago, unfortunately, but he was you know, kind of known as the world's expert on expert performance. And you know, I was definitely influenced by him and, and Paul Ward did a, a postdoc with him at Florida State University. So I, I was lucky to, to have Anders as part of my dissertation committee even when I moved from Florida State uh, with Paul Ward to Michigan Tech. So definitely there's, there's an influence there about just the whole what is an expert and that's, that's been a really challenging thing to, to nail down in law enforcement. Um, and it's, it's, I think it will be a constant challenge because in more traditional domains of expertise like chess, there's ELO ratings and uh, objective measures that can be used. And in law enforcement, there isn't such a thing. And often people don't agree with what, what makes an expert and who is an expert. And even in a given scenario what's a good response? And so even though that makes things hard in terms, in, in comparison to traditional um, areas of expertise research, I kind of like that. This is, um, to use one of Gary Klein's words, this is a, it's a squishy area and it's not, um, it's not really amenable to, to lab research in a way. And I, I like that kind of thing. I, I do some lab-based research as well. And I, I feel the I feel the different pulls, uh, and it's it's kind of a challenge to, to try to resolve them. So that's a long way to answer uh, or to give you one name, um, Anders Ericsson. Um and then someone else who I think I, I have to name and kind of thank was um, Mary Omedy, who was involved in the naturalistic decision making community uh, more back in the in the late nineties and early two thousands. Um, she's from Australia and she did a lot of work with firefighters, uh, wildland firefighters and their decision making in Australia and I was really lucky to work with her as an as an undergrad in Australia and so she definitely shaped uh, a lot of the way that I that I think and and the, the more and more that I uh, liaise and collaborate with people in um, in criminology and criminal justice, I really get to see different perspectives. And so just, just um, again, these are people that I've already mentioned, but uh, Jonathan Wender and Brian Landy from, from Polar Solutions, um, they're just, they've just been amazing. At, at, they've got different perspectives coming from different backgrounds, but they've had a lot of experience with naturalistic decision-making and they've just kind of opened my eyes about different ways of looking at things. So, Joel, I, it's very interesting to hear the people who have influenced you, but I wanted to kind of think about the other side of it. You have taken a leadership role in helping new people get involved in NDM. You've organized the Doctoral Consortium for prior NDM meetings. Um, you're currently organizing one for the uh, joint NDM Resilience Engineering Meeting planned for next June. Um, mm -hmm. I wondered, what are some of your takeaways from that experience, from from helping other people get started in the NDM world? Um, I think I've been really fortunate to be doing that. And also, I benefited from it myself. So I, I'm going to answer the question that, that you said, that, that you asked me. But, you know, I started off getting a leg up that way myself through uh, an NDM doctoral consortium back in 2011. And so I just feel like I'm paying that back now and you know 
each year that I've been involved in the doctoral consortium, there's you know a group of about 10 graduate students from all around the world that have been involved. And it's, it's really interesting to me. They come from lots of different backgrounds. Uh, they're um, investigating lots of different things. Um, and they come with a lot of passion. But there's relatively few that I see kind of stick around. And so that's, that's a little bit concerning to me. Um, I'm trying to think of ways of getting people to to continue on once they've got the once they've been involved in a doctoral consortium, uh, maybe even coming back and presenting uh, the end product of their research there, but then also coming to subsequent NDM conferences. So that's something um, that's been a, a challenge. And the the other thing that's also really interesting is that, and this is something that Gary Klein has continually pointed out to me. And with my thick head, it takes me a long time to realize. But there's very, there seems to be very few people in academia um, who who are doing NDM type research, and so um, that that just makes it challenging. It makes it challenging to to find uh, students because it's not a, a huge area of research, and there aren't that many people doing it in academia. It also, it's not popular like or not as popular as other areas and so then there's also uh, an issue of attracting students to do this kind of work and again I'll just um, hark back to something that, that Gary said that this this kind of work in this squishy kind of environment where things don't fall into neat boxes isn't really amenable to a typical PhD where you do um, experiments and do quantitative work and can run ANOVAs and run studies and everything's nice. Uh, it, it often takes a lot of time to just learn about a domain and be in a position to, to conduct interviews and then maybe design training and, and do that kind of thing. So I'm going to pause there for a second and let you talk. <laughs> yeah, so I just I just wanted to reflect. I mean, I've been to a few of these doctoral consortiums, and one of the things I am um, that's just very noticeable to me is that often the um, the folks who are there are just hungry for contact with people who have done this before. So all yes. these things that we're accustomed to thinking about, like like you said, how do you get smart about a domain? How do you get people to talk to you or let you observe them at work? How do you, um, you know, do these interviews? What what questions should you be asking? And once you have all the data, how do you analyze it? So all these basic questions that is kind of the bread and, and butter of our work. Um, I'm just struck when I'm at those doctoral consortiums, how these folks are just looking for mentors and, and, and ways to, um, to learn this, that, that um, it's not just a natural part of many graduate programs. No, um, it, yeah, it, it isn't. And I was um, lucky when I was at Michigan Tech doing my PhD with Paul Ward that he was running a, a course that covered some aspects of critical decision method, uh, retrospective verbal reports, things like that. And that was open to, I'm pretty sure, to undergraduate and to graduate students. But I haven't heard of many courses like that. And just as an example, um, you know, I've been at Wichita State here now as an assistant professor for five years. I, I would have thought that I would have gotten a chance to teach a course like that, a specialty course in my, in what I think is one of my areas of um, expertise or where, where I've got some knowledge to pass on and I haven't got a chance to do that yet uh, so and that's that's been a bit frustrating uh, to me you know and then if it's not done in courses then the only other option is to kind of you know do it one-on-one -on -one or in um, not not for credit workshops with a with a small group of students who who might be interested in doing that but um yeah, it's uh, it, it's challenging. It, it really is, um, and that's why I think I'm I'm still learning how to do it myself, as 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 I go along. And that's why you know I, I try to go to to some workshops that are being given by other people at uh, at the beginning of the NDM conference, because I 
I need all the help that I can get too. You know, to, to, to me, there's a really, to me, there's a small, at least core group of visible people who obviously have um, expertise in doing this kind of stuff. And I do not count myself as one of those. Uh, I, you know, I look to people like you and Brian as people who uh, are really expert in doing that and trying to get, and, and, and a bunch of others, um, but trying to get knowledge and gain knowledge about how to do it practically is, it's, it's a tough thing. Yeah, well, since, I, I look, since I look to Laura, you can just look to Laura as well. You can, you can okay. For me. <laughs> I was going to say, I think we all feel like we're learning all the time. It's, it's constantly a challenge. Um, yeah, but there's, but there's, but there's, there's levels to this and, and yeah, you're, you're, at, you're at a level where I think a lot of people would, would agree that, you know, what you're doing. Well, thanks. That's very kind of you. And I'm glad I give that impression. Um, but, but I wanted to say that I think your contributions in helping students, um, you know, uh, come to these doctoral consortiums, meet the folks they've read about and, and make kind of mentoring relationships is really important for the, um, just the growth and the quality of NDM research going forward. So I think your contributions there are really, really important. Well, thanks. And I, I just, I just look at it as, as I said, kind of pay it forward because, you know, I, I got a little bit of help in, in the beginning. Um, and, and that's another name. I think you'll be able to help me make sure that I get it correct. Cause it's a, it's an ARA person, I believe. Um, Steve Gabbert, Gabbert. Right. Yeah. yeah Steve right. Gabbert. So, so when, when I read, um, sources of power, when I was back in Australia and then I thought, okay, this is, I need to find out how, how I get into this. I sent an email to, to applied research associates, client division. And I think it was Steve who sent me an email back. And he told me about, you know, Mary Omidy in Australia and Gavin Linton, who had some connection to the naturalistic decision-making community. And so I got to meet with them personally and, uh, and hassle them and, you know, try to work out how do I get into this? What do I need to do? So I got, you know, I got a little bit of a leg up from them. And, and so, I get, yeah, I think I'm just trying to, I, I'm in some kind of position where I can help people maybe move forward a little bit faster than I did. So if I can do that, then that's a good thing, I think. So I, I just want to ask one more question on this issue. So your point earlier about why don't they stick around hmm. um, uh, is really interesting to me because um, as someone who sort of grew up in qualitative sociology, uh, I never sort of felt that pressure to, uh, to run experiments and, and, and do repeated uh, you know, data collection and, and, and prove things that have been proven. So, um, I, I, and, and that sort of feels like part of what you're saying is, is the pull away, which is, you know, you have to go through the certain wickets mm -hmm. to, to, to advance in academia. And while some people may come in at that doctoral level, uh, they, it's just a, a brief appearance because they have to do all these other things in, in order to sort of, uh, to, to advance their academic career. And I, I wonder, um, uh, I wonder if you have any sort of ideas just for the community generally about how, how we might mitigate that. Because I, I agree with Laura, you know, when you go to these events and, and you talk to the doctoral students, they seem very hungry. They seem very interested. They're sort of looking at, at, mm. at sort of pathways forward. And so, um, I, I just wonder if, I mean, this may be a, a larger systemic issue, but, uh, but I just wonder if you have any other sort of advice for the community about how, how we might point people in certain directions or, or help them stay in. That's a real challenge. And I'm just trying to, the, the best way I can think about that is, you know, my personal situation where I am and the experiences that I've had with, with graduate students and, the expectations of a, you know, I'm, I'm part of a, a human factors PhD program, mm -hmm. but, you know, when I talk about naturalistic decision making, type of work, even within, the, that human factors program, I get kind of strange looks because that's not, that's not science or that's that's not experiments or how, 
you know, what do you mean you're not going to do an experiment? So it, it's even challenging from people broadly in the same in the same field. And so, you know, what's what's a way to 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 get by it? I think one way could be to have a you know, I could have a discussion with faculty in my program and get them to sign off on the fact that I'm going to get students to do uh, a naturalistic decision-making kind of study rather than an experiment. I'm not sure how that would fly, but I could I could have that conversation. And the other thing that just seems to be the easier way around things, at least at the moment, is help students do some kind of you know regular experiment that's that they can do relatively quickly and get it out of the way so that they can satisfy the requirements and then move on to do other stuff but that's also that's also challenging right um, you know I've what I've found that I've had to do is you know I'd, I'd love to be spending more of my time doing NDM type work I feel that you know to be on tenure track and get tenure and be able to support graduate students that I've had to focus more on doing experimental work so I'm doing experimental work that is broadly related to police officers and perceptual cognitive expertise but if you'll ask my students none of that is fast work because it all it always involves um, trying to get police officers or police recruits as participants. That's not always the easiest thing. I also, because stimuli don't really exist for the kind for doing that kind of work, mm. we've been creating our own stimuli, and so I, so that takes a lot of time for graduate students to do. So I don't, I don't, I don't always have kind of canned experiments, quick things that I can give them that are really easy to do that are going to have any meaning. Um, so it's it's a constant, I find that it's a constant kind of tension and struggle. I don't have great answers, and I'd love to hear from people that, that have some answers or have some ideas. Laura, you've got answers. <laughs> I have no answers to that challenge. I, I think it's hard, yeah. yeah. And I think the personality of departments shift over the years as you have different faculty and different influential voices as well. But it, there, it's good that you're there at Wichita and you are an influential voice there. Trying, trying to be. Trying yeah. to be. And, uh, yeah. and um, yeah, being, being able to build up some relations with, uh, with the police, with the Wichita Police Department and the Sedgwick County Sheriff's Office. Um, so, you know, when, when, people, when people see me at the training center, they know who I am. They, they have an idea of who I am. I should also mention that I did some, what some people would think might be pretty stupid things um, to kind of gain some credibility. So I, I volunteered to get pepper sprayed. What? Um, <laughs> but that's something that, that police recruits generally do. They don't, they don't often get to volunteer. They get voluntold that they're doing it as part of their training so that they get to experience what it's like. So I, I did that. Wow. Um, and I also volunteered to get tased. Uh, so I did that. And I have it on video, but I'm not allowed to disseminate it. Uh. So, um, <laughs> but people, but, but it kind of helps because people, people know that, oh, uh, here's that crazy guy, here's that professor guy who volunteered to get tased in pepper spray. I think this could become a part of regular NDM meetings where oh. the domains we study, everyone has to sort of get a sample of what it's like to be in those domains. You could do it as a, a pre-conference workshop. Yeah, there's a lot of ideas. I love okay. it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'd be happy to uh, facilitate that. <laughs> um, yeah. so, so talk to us a bit more about uh, your research and, and sort of where it's heading next. You, you mentioned your you work with Polis, is that, uh, is that the primary focus now or do you have other directions you're going? Yeah, so that, that is the main focus at the moment. Uh, this 
grant from the National Institute of Justice is a two-year grant and you know, things have been slow due to COVID-19. So we're, we're still basically in the first year of it. So we've got some way to go and we'll probably get it and a no-cost extension on it just because of the, the delays due to, to COVID. So that, that is one of my main uh, things at the moment. And if I can take just, I'll try and do it in a, a couple of minutes. My other main focus is foci um, about perceptual cognitive skill. And this is the more experimental stuff. But one of the questions that I'm really interested in is looking at um, anticipation in terms of an officer being able to tell what kind of object a suspect may be drawing from a concealed location on their body. So we often hear about these situations or see them in the media where someone was armed with a toy gun or they had a cell phone in their hand and they did some kind of furtive movement or they had their hands behind their back and the officer thought that they were potentially drawing a gun and, and maybe shot them. So this is a really interesting question for me and it, it really taps into a lot of research in sports science which has looked at perceptual cognitive skill and can expert athletes do better at anticipating an opponent's movement than lesser skilled athletes. And so I've kind of taken that approach over to the law enforcement domain. So we've created our own stimuli where we had actors, we gave them uh, weapons and non-weapons, so wallets and cell phones and guns and knives and got them to put them on, you know, conceal them on their body in different locations and then we film them pulling those weapons and then we basically take each video which is very very short it's only a second or two of someone starting with their hands behind their back and then pulling some weapon and aiming it at the camera or I should say pulling an object whether it's a, a cell phone a wallet a gun or a knife and then we take that video and we do what's called temporal occlusion. So we create some different versions of the clip where if you think about it, the person's just standing there with their hands behind their back, the clip starts playing. As soon as the person starts to move, we cut it off and the video goes to a black screen. And so that, that would be the first occlusion point. Then we have another occlusion point where there's a little bit more of the movement and then we occlude it. We stop the video and it goes to black. We have about four or five different versions that progressively show more of the action and we put a whole bunch of them together show them to people in a random order and ask them to determine um, if the object is a weapon or a non-weapon so that's something that, that we're doing and i've got a couple of students working on and then we've taken that a step further to because some i got some feedback from um, a really another person who influenced me um, is, is in Germany in a city called Jena and his name is Ruven Kanyal Bruland and he's a, a sport and exercise psychologist specializing in anticipation and perceptual cognitive expertise and he pointed out to me that at some stage in these videos that we're showing the, the object itself is visible and so sometimes it's it's really blurry because it's people are moving so fast but at some stage the object itself is visible and so people can use that as a cue to try to determine well what is this thing that the person's pulling so to deal with that we've gone and made um, point light displays so if you are familiar with um, any kind of animated movie you might have seen how they make animated movies where they put actors in bodysuits with these kind of reflective markers all over them and they film them from cameras from all different directions and they record, they can essentially record the movements of their joints and their limbs. So we did that and so we got an actor, put them in one of those suits, uh, collaborated with some people in biomedical engineering at Wichita State University and so now we've got a whole bunch of video clips where all you see is a black background and white dots marking wrist, elbow, shoulder, head, hip, knee, ankle and you see someone drawing something it's obvious that they're doing some kind of motion but now you can't see anything you can't see what they're wearing you can't see the object 
And so we're, we're working through that. And I've had a graduate student who just completed her master's project using those stimuli. Fantastic. We actually had uh, Peter Fatty on a couple podcasts ago and, um, mm-hmm. and you're, you're tying it all together for us because uh, he sort of walked us through uh, his application of course in sports, but, um, and, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting, uh, interesting connection. And, and just to, to make that connection even a little bit more uh, tight, uh, I'm fortunate enough, um, Peter and one of his students, um, who's doing his, disserta- his dissertation on this kind of thing with police officers, being able to anticipate what kind of attack is coming. Uh, I'm, I'm an external member of that student's dissertation uh, project, dissertation thesis. So I'm, I'm really, I, I've been speaking with Peter over the last year or so about that kind of stuff. So it, it's really interesting. And just, just to make the connection even tighter, sorry to do this to you, 2011 NDM in Orlando was the first time I met Peter. I met him through Paul Ward, my advisor at the time. And so we've had contact on and off since then. And it's, uh, yeah, kind of coming to something that we're doing jointly together in a way now. We are a small community. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Our last question is kind of a fun one. And it goes like this. If if you could instantly achieve expertise in anything, what would it be? Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Nice. Nice. I I don't don't know what that is. Sorry, sorry. I I don't even know what that is. Okay. Um, It is a, yes, a martial art. And it's a martial art and a sport. And so it's basically grappling and uh, submission wrestling on the ground. And so the opponent, the the, uh, goal is to submit your opponent. And so that's normally done either by choking them or putting some kind of like an arm bar on them. And so they would submit, they'd tap you to indicate, okay, you got me, like I'm done. And then you let it go and you kind of start again. And so I've been doing that for quite a while. I'm really not good at it, but I like doing it. Um, and it just blows my mind um, how some people just get it. They get it and I've been doing it for quite a while and I don't get it like other people get it. They've kind of got some mental blueprint. I can tell that they've got it. I don't have it. It frustrates me to no end. Um, One day, maybe after I get tenure and I don't have to worry about that anymore, I would love to do some some studies, you know, expertise or NDM related uh, in that community because there's just so much that goes on about people trying to get better in that community there's lots of videos online and courses and analysis and so i'm I'm hoping i i have not found anyone that's done anything related to that yet i I constantly look for it there was a presentation at an ndm meeting in marseille i think about uh judo it was another martial art yeah i think that might have been in bath Oh, in Bath. Okay. I, th- I think I think so. Um, so I know that there's, there's been some stuff done with some martial arts, like Aikido, definitely. Um, but no one's done it in this Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and that's it's actually relatively popular uh, as a, as a sport. Uh, a lot of people are doing it, and there's lots of there's lots of resources out there, and there's even lots of online learning resources so the people put together online courses for people to study at home and so there's i I just see so many questions uh related to that um and about how people what is expertise in there and what goes on in experts heads that's not going on inside my head um and then just one other thing to to tie that together is you know it's another way that i've managed to make myself known within the the police community here in Wichita is that through doing that Citizen Police Academy, I found out that there's a small group of police officers 
who get together to train a couple of times a week at the police academy doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Uh-huh. And so I got myself invited to train with them. And so that's also helped me kind of become a little bit of a familiar face with people there. And there's people, because I've trained there with people, I've got some people who will who can vouch for me and go, yeah, Joel's not a complete idiot. He's... I've I've choked I've choked him unconscious a few times. Um, right. So what well, well, it's clear why you'd want to instantly achieve expertise because it sounds like going through the novice journeyman apprentice levels and that sort of thing is really not much fun. Yeah, but you don't you don't have to get choked unconscious. You can just you can just uh, tap and people should and people should let go. But sometimes people are known to be stubborn. And, right. And I, I don't know anyone like that. Um, but yeah well on that cheerful note Joel thank you so much for speaking with us today it's been super interesting and um, uh, I I certainly hope that uh, the work that you're doing uh, gets as much and as wide publicity as possible um, and then it gets to the right folks who can improve the kinds of domains you're working in So with that, uh, I'd like to say thank you for joining us, uh, Joel, and for the MDM Podcast. I'm Brian Moon. And I'm Laura Militello. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org.